My wife is learning American Sign Language, and Lee just said he loves me. Oh, I did. Oh, I love you too, Craig. But you used your mouth. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> okay. Let's see. We're not even five minutes in. We've got the E rating. Yeah. It's all, it's a double entendre. Hey, Prog fans. Welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Prog Podcast Project. My name is Tony, and as always, I am joined by... Craig. And Lee. We are three friends and prog aficionados here to talk about the history and the craft of progressive music while sprinkling in our always unvarnished opinions of the music and the personalities that make this genre so great. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at up3show. Now on Mastodon at up3show on mastodon.social. Or you can also find us on our homepage at up3show.com, where you can find all the episodes, some extra multimedia content we put out there. And then finally, if you want to reach out to the show, which some of our folks are doing and we're reacting to it, um, you can email us the old-fashioned way at up3show at gmail.com. If you just can't get enough of the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our podcast page at up3show.podbean.com or wherever it is that you get the podcast. This makes sure that you never miss an episode and helps other prog fans find the show. Sorry, that was really distracting, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, like, <laughs> I could tell you were kind of pausing. Almost. Totally got it. it was yeah, like, okay. yeah. <laughs> I was going to point back, but then I thought, no, I'm just going to take the ball. Yeah, there you go. The way we record, we do Zoom, and then Lee does all of his magic and post. And as I'm doing the intro, Lee's like pointing at the camera, and I'm like, what the hell is going on yeah. here, dude? <laughs> uh, we usually like to catch up, so I'm going to start with you tonight, Craig. What have you been up to since last time? Playing a lot of music. I had a gig. This morning at a coffee shop with me and my bass player buddy James, shout out James, Yep. we did two hours of jazz standards and people stuck around. Nice. Very cool. That's so really, really that was cool. awesome. James is the upright bass guy? Uh, he doesn't play upright yet. We're working on that. He plays a Jocko Pastorius fretless. Ooh. And that is freaking oh, nice. sweet, man. Never mind. Yeah. That's beautiful right there. I'll be doing a little solo and he'll do a little, you know, freaking Jocko thing. And it's like, oh my God, that's gorgeous. So are you playing on like a piano or a keyboard? Depends where we are. But when we play out, I play on my synthesizer. That's a Korg Chrome for the gearheads out there. And it has the Kronos piano. Nice. I've got this kick-ass synthesizer. And probably for the past two years, I've only used preset zero, zero, (laughs) zero. What about you, Lee? What have you been up to since last time? Yeah, I've been working in the studio, but unfortunately not on music. I got a buddy that needed some help with some YouTube videos. Oh. And at work, I've been doing a lot of video work using Adobe Premiere Pro. So I just decided to sit down and help him out. Interesting. Yeah, I got to get a little focused here because I think I'm a little scattered right now and get back to some writing. I think that'd be the best thing. That's awesome. For me, a few weeks ago was Thanksgiving here in the States, and me and the family went on a little Disney cruise. Right. We went down to the Mexican Riviera, and on this cruise, there were a couple of headline performers, and one of them was a sleight-of-hand card trick guy called Siegfried Tiber. So shout out to Siegfried. He's super awesome dude. He did a workshop where he started teaching people how some of the sleight-of-hand works. 
like all the math and psychology that goes into it and really got me hooked. Mm -hmm. So now I'm working on learning some of that. And then literally last night, as we record this, he was performing in Estes Park. So I went up to Estes Park, saw him, and then he was so gracious. After the show, he was like, oh, you're the guy from the cruise. And we just hung out and we talked and like shut the place down, actually. Yeah. What kind of math is in close-up magic? So for some of these tricks, it's like knowing mathematically how many cards are in the deck. Mm -hmm. And then the psychology is chunking and stuff like that. So you're paying attention to patterns as you're dealing. And if a card comes out, you're like keeping, it's kind of like card counting, but a more elegant way. And so mathematically, you know, oh, I've already taken two of the aces out. And so you, if you know where this ace is and there's only 22 cards left in the deck, you know that if you shuffle them this many times in this way, it'll come back around and it's guaranteed to be on the bottom or whatever. Like there's a lot of keeping track of things. Mm -hmm. What I've really been learning from Siegfried is how important the showmanship is. Yeah. You're using the showmanship to deflect and distract from what you're really doing. Mm -hmm. It's really, really cool. He's an awesome dude. I've seen him on the Penn & Teller Fool Us YouTube clips. Yeah, and he fooled them. Yeah, a couple times. Twice, I think. I'm going to put it in the show notes that folks check that out, but he's a really, really cool dude. That's awesome. We also like to catch up on what we've been listening to. So, Craig, I'm going to start with you again. What have you been listening to since last time? I stumbled on this album on YouTube called Jazz Sabbath. (laughs) Is that what I think it is? Probably. It's a bunch of Black Sabbath songs turned into jazz. Oh, my God. And it's actually really good. (laughs) Sounds really interesting, actually. It's really cool. And there's another one with uh, King Crimson jazz songs. uh, Found the Elton John jazz one, which is not that much different from the regular stuff. That's funny. Sounds kind of steely, Danny. But uh, the Jazz Sabbath thing, I've really been nerding out on. It's really cool. Awesome. What have you been listening to, Lee? New Threshold Dividing Line came out in November, and I have been binging it ever since. How is it? I'm liking it. It's very down the center line for Threshold, even though they've gone through some lineup changes over the last two albums. Notably, Damian Wilson's no longer singing, and Glenn Morgan is back on vocals again. But it's good. I hear a little more keyboard work from Richard West on this album. And his autobiography is supposed to drop at my house any day now. So I'm going to read that. Oh. What are you listening to, Tony? So as Arjen Lucasen has been doing for the past couple of years, he's been going back and revisiting some of his previous releases, remixing and remastering them. A few years ago, he did Into the Electric Castle. What he just did and released was Universal Migrator Parts 1 and 2 remixed and remastered and brought them all up. He did a 5.1 mix, an updated 2.0 mix. And one of the things that I learned in reading all of the liner notes, all of those original recordings were on ADAT tapes. He had to go re-read them all into his computer. What he found is that some of the tracks were missing components. Mm. Some of the tracks actually have new content in them. He does an amazing job with these remasters. Arion is very much about the sci-fi story and the characters in that sci-fi story. So the 5.1 allows it to be a bit more theatrical in terms of like stage presence and where the sounds come from and all of that. So I've been really, really uh, down the rabbit hole on that. But it's Arion. That's to be expected. Right. Lee, what's uh, new in terms of the news and releases? The one I'm most excited about is Haken has announced their new album will be out March 3rd, and it's called Fauna. First of all, the cover art is amazing. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't looked at it, go do that. But they just released a new single called The Alphabet of Me, and that came out this weekend. 
So I've been also binging that on top of Threshold. What are you thinking of it? Because I'm, I'm actually liking it, and I'm not normally a Haken fan. I'm liking it. You know, they did Nightingale, but that was last, God, I want to say it was like March or April, mm-hmm. which will be on this album. But this new song definitely has a different feel. That intro keyboard line that Pete Jones is playing, the little 7-8 thing, mm-hmm. that's a departure from the sound Haken has had over the last couple of albums. And that's to be expected now that Pete Jones has taken over for Diego Tejeda. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to what this band does on this new album. I don't know why, but I'm just really, really liking that. And then I think we talked about this last month, but I just want to keep it in people's minds. I'm super excited and looking forward to the new Peter Gabriel. Yes. I was going to ask anything I can find in terms of touring, information on personnel, which they're keeping really, really close under wraps. Yeah. I'm super, super excited. Well, Tony Levin is... Tony Levin is definitely there. Yes. The same guitar player. Yeah. Spacing his name out. He's gotten on and done a couple of teasers now. Yep. For the tour anyway, not necessarily the album. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's coming up. So again, New Threshold came out in November, Dividing Line, listening to that. New Redemption is going to be coming out in March as well, mm. which I'm excited about. I Am The Storm, they just previewed that track. Yep. Might try to see if we can get Nick Van Dick on this show too. And Riverside, looking forward to that next month. The new album, ID Entity, Identity, will be coming out. Outrun the Sunlight, a band I really got into at the end of season two. Instrumental prog metal kind of thing, similar to Archeco. They have a new album coming out in February, The Return of Inertia. And a very timely announcement, considering the topic of this episode, Trevor Rabin has announced he has a new solo album, Rio, coming out early next year. And still waiting for release dates from Rain's second album, Radio Silence. And Pattern Seeking Animals, fourth album. Cool. And then, as we usually do, Craig brings us something that's unheard of, uh, highlighting someone that's uh, small, indie, or otherwise notable. So, Craig, who do you have for us this month? This unheard of is maybe a little sarcastic, is maybe (laughs) the right word. As you know, this is the Yes episode. Yeah. I give Lee a hard time about Star Castle. They were a Yes sounding band that was popular in the 70s. Go ahead. You can say knockoff. <laughs> it's the frontal cortex. I'm, I'm trying to uh, trying to avoid that. Being a grown up. So anyway, I don't want to do Star Castle, but I stumbled on this band called Yesterdays, and they're a Hungarian prog band. So let's play some clips, and we'll have a little bit of fun. So that's not too yesy, but that's kind of progressive. Their stuff only sometimes sounds like yes. But I have another clip here. I'm going to do a side by side, and I'm going to play a clip from yesterday's and a clip from Relayer. And it's only a three second clip, but I want you to listen to both of them and see if you can tell the difference. Okay, so three seconds. Now here's another one. Don't they sound the same? Isn't that crazy? Well, it's just a chord hit. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) All right, let's listen to the whole thing then. Oh, 
The bass, definitely, yeah. It's got the Chris Squire bass, got a little bit of harmony, then they throw in some flute. Do you know much Glassheimer? No, I never heard of him. Because that's what this reminds me of. In fairness, they say that some of their influences are yes, but there is a lot of stuff that also sounds like Genesis. There's a lot of Pink Floyd. Yeah. It's just really sort of classic prog. And in the spirit of me liking guitar solos, let's find a guitar solo for these guys that's actually really tasty. That definitely has a little more part of the sunrise feel to it. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely the uh, subtle string mellotron in the background. Very Rick Wakeman. Mm-hmm. That bass is very Chris Squire. It's very Chris Squire. I love that bass line. Yeah. Uh, the guitar, not Steve Hall at all. Right. I'll just tell you a little bit about them. There's not a lot online. Again, they're a Hungarian band. They have a Wikipedia page. Oh, they do? What's it say? <laughs> 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 Let's see. It's it's the end of the year. I'm taking over. <laughs> unheard of for today. <laughs> Hungarian symphonic progressive rock band based in Cluj, Napoca, Romania. 2004, the band won its first prize. They've been around a while, man. Like almost 20 years. Yeah, they have. They have a very extensive discography, though. Yeah, they do. Yeah, I want to go listen to this album. The most recent ones, uh, like their best one, Saint Exupery Alma, and it's Saint Exupery's Dream. It's a seventy-four minute long concept album oh. about Exupery's plane crash in the Libyan desert, and of course, the Little Prince story. It had everything you'd expect from a vintage-sounding prog rock album: tons of mellotrons, moogs, distorted bass guitars, flutes, multiple six to eight voice harmonies, strong yes, Genesis and Gentle Giant influences. Very cool. I'm reading through this discography, and they have two mm-hmm. back-to-back releases that are each four discs long, so eight discs total, telling the story of Dante's Inferno. Oh, my God. <laughs> which thematically is one of my favorite stories to tell in metal. So I'm definitely going to be down to go listen to that. Beautiful. They do not take on shabby topics. <laughs> no, man. These guys seem really, really awesome. Yeah. They do not shy away. Their next album will be War and Peace. (laughs) (laughs) Wuthering Heights, the metal opera. (laughs) Their newest album that we just said, St. Exumery's Alma, it's on Bandcamp. They're on Facebook. They have a YouTube page. Check them out. Gotten a lot out of listening to these guys. Cool. So let's go talk about Real Yes. Yes. Let's talk about Yes. Now, even though this is about Prague, we like to keep our discussions and our podcast just in general down to about an hour. But Yes has such a long history, so many albums to talk about. So we're going to divide it in half. I'm going to talk about it up until drama. And then Lee's going to pick it up from them because I kind of stopped enjoying Yes in the 80s. So that gives me about 20 minutes to talk about 10 albums. So that's like two minutes per album. Uh, So we're going to kind of do the Yes lightning round and uh, kind of go through their discography. But first, 
But I just want to say a couple of personal things about Yes. I grew up in the Philadelphia, New Jersey area, and Yes was huge in that area. Album-oriented FM stations were big. There was WMMR. They were pretty instrumental in helping to get Yes to the masses to the point that in 1976, they had an outdoor concert at JFK Stadium with Yes headlining the Relayer Tour. And there was anywhere between 120 and 130,000 people at this concert. Cool. If it's not the largest, it's among the largest ever in a single enclosed location. Hmm. And 14-year-old Craig was there with his buddy John Harris. It was awesome. Yeah. We were probably a mile and a half away from the band because we went up into the bleachers as far as we could because we thought that would be cool and uh, had a great time. It was, yes, Peter Frampton, Gary Wright, the Pusset Dart Band. And the Mummers came out and got booed off the stage. <laughs> if you don't know what the Mummers are, it's a big parade in Philadelphia that they have every year on New Year's Day. Okay. And Mummers uh, do like string band stuff. It's actually really cool. Anyway, been a Yes fan since the early days. Their very first album was from 1969. It was called Yes. Not to be confused with the third album, which was called The Yes Album. And this had their initial lineup, John Anderson, Chris Squire, Bill Bruford, Peter Banks on guitar, Tony Kay on organ, and they're still kind of trying to find their sound. They had a couple of covers on the album, as well as some original pieces. So I'll do a clip from a cover, just so we can hear kind of the genesis, if you will. Well, I can see why you picked that song. Little little jazzy chops. Yeah, it's got very much a jazz feel to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's Peter Banks on guitar. And what's really interesting to me is his sound and a lot of times Steve Howe sound, very similar, not processed, a lot of jazzy licks right up there in the mix. Right. Really sweet. That's a cover of a bird song called ICU. That sounds about what I would expect for that era, right, from a punk yeah. band. The bass is very Chris Squire. You know, you're already starting to hear how he kind of fits into the sound, which I thought was cool. Okay, moving on. July 1970, Time in a Word, their second album. Same lineup, John Anderson, Peter Banks, Chris Squire, Tony Kay, Bill Bruford. Um, Again, original material and some covers. What I thought is interesting about this album and this period, John Anderson, who is one of the founders of Yes, made the comment... At the time, we were really kind of like, you know, competing, if you will, with Genesis and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. I never really saw that. I always thought of them as kind of their own sound. But then when I went back and listened to some tracks on this album, I started to see sort of influences back and forth. So let's listen to that. To me, 
that has a lot of ELP overdriven yeah. organ that was happening at about the same time. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree with that. Also, uh, this album was uh, not that much of a success. Another interesting data point about this album is they had a small orchestra with them. Mm. It's about three years after the Moody Blues did it. Uh, Deep Purple also did it about the same time. Um, it was kind of an experiment that maybe didn't fail, but didn't really work out. But did cause some dissension in the band. Peter Banks was not a fan of the whole approach and didn't want to do it. And they fired him and Steve Howe showed up for the next album. What's interesting is they recorded the album. Peter Banks bitched and moaned. They threw him out of the band. And then they had to take a photo for the album cover. But they weren't really on very good terms with Peter Banks. So uh, Steve Howe is actually on the album cover and didn't play a note. There's more of that coming. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah. Awesome. So that brings us to the Yes album, February 1971. The lineup changes, obviously. John Anderson, Chris Squire, Steve Howe, Tony Kay, Bill Bruford. Eddie Offord shows up, and he's pretty instrumental in establishing the Yes sound. He mostly did engineering, but also produced as well, alongside of all of the members of Yes who always had some level of input of what the sound needed to be. But Eddie absolutely was the engineer. Now, if you look at the track list of this album, this is their third album, and I'm going to read it off. Yours is No Disgrace, Clap, Starship Trooper, I've Seen All Good People, Perpetual Change. Uh, the only one that didn't establish Yes as a powerhouse was a tune called Adventure, which I went back and reminded myself what it sounded like, and it's a good song, too. I listened to that a billion times when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. And when I was in summer camp and starting to hang out with the music nerds, the guitar players were the ones that could do this. And that goes on for as long as it needs to. This is the album to me where Yes really got established and just took everything over on Prague. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Again, every song, with the exception of one, they still do these songs in concert. Yes. So, how do you top something like that? You come out with an album called Fragile, November 1971, and some people, myself included, think this is the classic lineup. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because even though Alan White was with the band as long as he was, I still feel like Bill Bruford somehow embodies Yes more. I think it's just because I knew about him as the drummer first. So Alan White, in my brain, he's still the new guy. I, I agree. I think this is the classic Yes lineup. And for me, it's not even all of that. For me, for whatever reason, it's the combination of John Anderson and Rick Wakeman. Exactly. That's the two that cement this is the classic lineup for me. I agree with that, but I think you have to put Chris Squire in there. If someone says describe yes, I'm first going to go to John Anderson's vocals, and then second, I'm going to go to Rick Wakeman's keys. Mm -hmm. Yes, Chris Squire is awesome, but for me, it's the keys and the vocals. That's what I bring out for people. Yeah, and I think when you ask people what's the defining sound of yes, it's John Anderson first, and then Chris Squire's bass second. Mm-hmm. And I feel exactly the other way. Rick Wegman's keyboards are great, but that's not a defining sound for yes, in my opinion. Now, what's interesting is 
Rick Wakeman joins the band because Tony Kay doesn't want to use synthesizers. Right. He's an organ guy. He's a piano guy. He's like, yeah, I don't know about this, this Moog shit. <laughs> so Rick Wakeman shows up with the ability to play an arsenal of keyboards. If you listen to Fragile and look at the track list, it's some new songs and then a bunch of songs where each member contributes a piece of solo material, if you will. Mm. Cans and Brahms, that's an instrumental that Rick Wakeman does. Uh, we Have Heaven is just John Anderson with an 87-part harmony. Uh, the Fish, Chris Squire, Mood for a Day, Steve Howe. They did that because it's a new lineup and they have figure new people are being turned on to the band. They want to show each personality and what they're about. The reality is Rick Wakeman joined and they had to go on tour and get an album out real quick. <laughs> so they're like, all right, we can write some songs, but let's all just crank some shit out as well. But again, it's, yes, Fragile, incredible album. The other songs are Roundabout, South Side of the Sky, Heart of the Sunrise. In fact, Rick Wakeman shows up with a bunch of keys and just a real sort of sensibility about orchestrations. So I got a 30-second clip of Heart of the Sunrise. It's like a gumbo. It just has a little bit of everything in it. Health comes to you. little bit of synth, little bit of guitar, little bit of bass, little bit of drums, a sweet little melody. That is my favorite Yes song of all time. Is that insane? I love that song. And you didn't even play the best part. Oh, I know. They're all best parts. That's one way to get around the DMCA claims. Yeah, <laughs> we'll sing the clips. So uh, there was a bunch of firsts on that album. It was the first album with uh, some Roger Dean work. It was the first album with Rick Wakeman, first album with some solo pieces by necessity. So what do you follow Fragile up with? Well, you follow it up with sort of a concepty album. And that's where Close to the Edge comes in. Now, here's the interesting thing about Close to the Edge. Bill Bruford left the band. He wasn't real excited about uh, what he called the band's happy diatonic, which means major scale music, and wanted to be a little more jazz-oriented and improvisational. So we moved to King Crimson, and on the one hand, when he was with Yes, recording Close to the Edge, because this is his last album, he says, he found the process of recording Close to the Edge tortuous and like climbing Mount Everest. Now, if you think back to what we talked about with King Crimson, I can't imagine moving to King Crimson is a more sort of pleasant experience. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's moving from the frying pan into the fire. <laughs> yeah, go Absolutely. work with Robert Fripp if you're not happy. <laughs> exactly. I mean, he's so easygoing. Yeah, right. Yeah, he's pretty chill. You know, uh, everything's in a major key there, too. He'll give you some non-diatonic. <laughs> so anyway, Close to the Edge is absolutely a seminal album. It's uh, just three tracks, um, side one, because it was an LP originally. All Close to the Edge, which we've all heard a million times. Side two is And You and I and Siberian Katru. They almost always open their shows with a classical piece that segued into Siberian Katru. It's Stravinsky, the Firebird Suite. I believe that's correct. 
Alan White joined uh, the band and toured on the Close to the Edge tour, and the rest of that is history. So let's listen to a clip of my favorite Yes song, uh, And You and I. When I was doing my road trip to California back a couple months ago, one of the things I tried to do on that road trip, since I knew this episode was upcoming, was listen to the entire Yes discography as far as I could. Mm -hmm. My intention was start at the beginning and just listen because I thought I would get the evolution of the sound. This is the only album I put on repeat a few times. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And I just kind of spun here for a little while before I moved on to, to other stuff. It's wonderful. My daughter, when she was in college, the chapel at her college had a pipe organ that you were not allowed access to. We figured out how to get access to it. So what I did is I learned the pipe organ part from close to the edge. We figured out how to break into the chapel, turn on the pipe organ, and son of a gun, if I didn't get up there and play on a pipe organ at the (laughs) Goucher College pipe organ, it was great. So the next album is Tales from Topographic Oceans. Uh, Tons has been written about it. It was a very, very divisive album. On the one hand, it was probably the peak of John Anderson and Steve Howe working together. But at the same time, it was possibly the peak of the rest of the band going, what the hell are you doing, man? Uh, To the point where (laughs) Rick Wakeman didn't really like it. Instead of Tales from Topographic Oceans, he would call it Tales from Toby's Graphic Go-Kart. But it does have that also, classic lineup, Anderson, Squire, Hal, Wakeman, and White. But uh, it's four sides, and most of the band members that you read about, they all sort of agree that, yeah, it was too much music for three album sides and not enough for four. So they just like did a lot of improvisation and stuff like that. So ultimately, the album that caused Rick Wakeman to go, yeah, I'm, I'm done with you guys. Right. Um, this isn't for me. During the uh, quiet parts of this concert when they were touring, <laughs> one of the reasons they got pissed at him was, he would like have dinner on stage while they were performing because uh, there were parts he didn't have to play and he was bored. Yeah, Rick Wegman is kind of a divisive figure in the band early on. It's not this album. I think it's going for the one. But I read an interview with Chris Squire. He said that Rick didn't want to be in the full band recording sessions. He wanted them to finish their parts and then send the tapes up to Montreux, Switzerland so he could add keyboards later. <laughs> I can't show up in the studio. Yeah. Let's move on to Relayer. One of my absolute favorite albums. Uh, They had to replace Rick Wakeman. Who did they get? They interviewed a bunch of people. Vangelis was a strong contender, but his personality didn't mesh with the band. There's a lot of stories about that. Settled on Pat Mraz. He helped write the album and also toured with it. Gates of Delirium, Sound Chaser, To Be Over Again. It's a three-song album. I'll do a little quick clip and you can sort of uh, get a flavor of the Pat Moraz versus Rick Wakeman influence. Rick Wakeman, very classically trained. Pat Moraz, a little more jazzy, a little more proggy, maybe.
I could listen to that over and over again. This is a great yes album. Why do you like it so much, Lee? I do like Patrick Moran's quite a bit. I like the change over to a little more jazzy mm-hmm. sound, and I really like Sound Chaser. I just think there's a lot of good work on this album. I agree. I love how many contrasts there are in the music. Yes. It's got stuff like we just listened to, and then it's got some of the mellowest, sweet, beautiful melodies that you could imagine. Yep. It's kind of a one-off, though. It is. Going for the One comes out in July 77. After a pretty long break, everybody did solo work. But then Pat Mraz got fired. They started recording Going for the One, and his heart didn't really seem to be in it. He just wasn't really gelling with the band. So Rick Wakeman came back. He uh, says, yeah, I did a lot of maturing. I kind of grew up, I think. But he also did some pretty monstrous tours, and yes, it seems did. like he might have lost a little money. Journey to the Center of the Earth and yeah. Six Wives of Henry VIII. I think Journey to the Center of the Earth. Put yeah, that was a massive undertaking. That was crazy. Yep. Anyway, going for the one, 1977, as opposed to many of the previous albums that were either just one long-ass song or two or three songs, this album is pretty accessible. It's a lot of shorter songs with the exception of a few, like Awaken and Turn of the Century are really long proggy ones. But if you listen to the opening track going for the one, it's really upbeat. In fact, they even count it off when they start. It's like, and they kind of jump in. But I'm going to play a clip of it. What's really kind of cool is the time signature is constantly changing, even though it's kind of a poppy song. Definitely hear the uh, the Rick Wakeman sparkly synthesizer in the background. So I love that album. So interesting things about Going for the One are there's no Roger Dean artwork. It's a hypnosis album cover. And Eddie Offord was not on the album engineering or producing. So finally, Tormato, November 1978, has kind of the original lineup again, of course, with the new drummer, Alan White. This album is another example of how dysfunctional the band was. Generally, no members of Yes seem to like this album or enjoy how it worked out. In fact, if you listen to it, it sounds kind of thin and tinny and uninspired. Eddie Offord came in and produced some of it and then left in the middle. Apparently, he recorded everything with Dolby, but didn't tell anybody that he recorded with Dolby. And they didn't turn it back on. To and they didn't it? turn it back on. Oh, God. Because when they did a remix in like 2003, they're like, oh, I think he used Dolby. Let's see what happened. Oh, son of a bitch. That's this is good. a really muddy mix. <laughs> exactly. They have a song called Don't Kill the Whales, which is a really great idea, but it's. Oh, that's a disgusting song. Don't kill the whales. Dig it. Dig it. <laughs> I hate that song. God. This was one of their first tours that was in the round. A six-ton circular revolving stage in the middle of the arena that cost them a zillion dollars to build. And early on, it would fail, and the stage hands would have to turn it. (laughs) 79, they start trying to record drama. John Anderson and Rick Wakeman can't quite get it together with uh, the rest of the band. And so they just sort of split, and the rest of the band is like, oh, what do we do? And this is uh, where Jeff Downs and Trevor Horn show up and change the sound of the band quite a bit. They uh, have an 80s sound to it. Um, I don't have a clip for this one. Oh, man. Really? Tempest Fuge is one of my favorite songs of all time. Let's just pull it up then. (laughs) 
let's segue to you, if that's okay. Okay, cool. Yeah, I like this album quite a bit. It is a pretty significant change with Jeff Downs and Trevor Horn, but I think the writing is closer to fragile, close to the edge kind of yes. Mm -hmm. That song, Tempest Fugit, is one of Chris Squire's best bass moments. And there's other great songs on this, like Does It Happen and Machine Messiah, where they used a Fairlight. Listening to it now, 30, 40 years later, yeah, it does sound kind of like classic yes. I'm not sure why I don't like it. This is kind of the last of the, what I would call a classic yes period. That's kind of a loose term. Mm-hmm. And to end this period with an album called Drama is perfect. Because in general, this band does not get along. They constantly fight. It's a pretty big cult of personalities. So with all the culmination of that drama between John Anderson, Rick Wegman, Jeff Downs, Trevor Horn, Yes goes on hiatus. And Chris Squire decides he's going to put together a side project with a guitarist out of South Africa named Trevor Rabin. Originally, the project was going to be called Cinema and have Chris Squire, Alan White, and Trevor Rabin. It was going to be a little more commercial sounding, a little more pop oriented. Mm -hmm. They start recording tracks and Chris Squire starts showing the tracks around to different people and plays them for John Anderson. And John says, man, I'd really like to sing on this. Do you think I could come back in and sing? Oh, nice. And they start looking for a keyboardist and he plays it for Tony Kay. Same thing. So at this point, they look at it and they say, well, instead of trying to establish a new band cinema, we might as well leverage the name Yes. This is just a new incarnation of Yes with Trevor Rabin. They get Trevor Horn to come back and produce, and this becomes 90125, released in 1983. And this is a hugely successful album, mm-hmm. but it is a very different sound for Yes. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Everybody and their dog has heard Owner of a Lonely Heart. <laughs> I am one of those people who heard Owner of a Lonely Heart gazillions of times, yeah, but mm-hmm. didn't know it was Yes. Yeah. Oh, wow. When I thought of Yes, I was always thinking of the classic Yes period. So as I was doing my experiment in my car, listening to the discography, I think I even texted you guys about this. I was driving yeah. around. Like, what the hell? <laughs> I was driving around <laughs> North Hollywood, and the previous album ends, and the, then owner of a lonely heart starts and i'm like what the hell is this like where did this come from <laughs> that happened yeah this album and the next one big generator are really a very different sound for yes very bright very 80s kind of pop but if you came from this background period like you're saying tony you did not recognize this version of yes at all mm-hmm. and i think a lot of people that were in my camp and craig's camp kind of scratched their heads about this And Craig, you were talking about phantom people appearing on album covers. At one point, they were considering Eddie Jobson as keyboardist for this version of the band. Hmm. And so when you see the video for Owner of a Lonely Heart, there's a brief moment where they're standing on the top of a building. And one of those people is Eddie Jobson, even though he never joins the band, never plays a note on the album. Wow. You can find some decent prog songs on these albums, but in general... This is a very, very different sound of Yes, and here's a composite clip.
So I had to dig for clips that were very prog oriented Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. the majority of these two albums, it sounds like a Trevor Rabin solo album with a yes bent on it. Yeah. You can hear Chris Squire, you can hear John Anderson's vocals, but Mm -hmm. this to me is a very, very different yes. So John Anderson came back after drama. He came back for several albums after drama. So they do these two albums, 90125, Big Generator. These are hugely successful albums. 90125 goes triple platinum. It's the largest selling album in their catalog. Wow. And that's circa 1983, right? That's 1983, you're right. Hmm. And I think Big Generator might be 85. But one very key thing that happens here is the record execs really latch on to this sound. Hmm. While it's a very different yes sound... Um, it actually sounds right in line with 80s music to me across the board. Yeah. Yeah. But as we talked about in the Genesis episode, this is where Genesis went after Peter Gabriel left. I was thinking the same thing. Yes. I'm just seeing a lot of parallels between Genesis, the infighting in Genesis, some creative force leaves, and then they go in this direction. I don't know the backstory. And I think this is where you're leading to, Lee. Were record execs who were much more powerful back then just pushing bands in this direction? Well, so I think Yes trips into this sound because initially it was going to be a completely separate band cinema with a completely different direction. And then it sort of migrates back into Yes and they just take the sound and run with it. But I do think that once record execs heard that sound and saw it sold triple platinum, Mm -hmm. they were latched onto it and they weren't going to let go of it. So Yes, after that, I do believe they are pushing Yes to keep going in that direction. Mm -hmm. But all of these are pretty much straight out of Trevor Rabin's catalog. Okay, that tracks. Yeah. One of the things that I think is interesting, since, you know, just compared to the Genesis, we researched Genesis, we realized, oh, okay, Tony Banks is kind of the dictator. Right. Respectfully. There isn't really a dictator in Yes. You know, it seems like they're all sort of dictators. I think you're right, and I think that's one of the reasons there is so much infighting. Mm-hmm. Actually, I read a quote from Eddie Oford. Mm-hmm. And he said one of the hardest things about being a producer for Yes is that it was a room full of producers. Ah. So I can imagine with Rick Wakeman, John Anderson, Chris Squire, et cetera, et cetera. And they all wrote also. Yeah, they all wrote. Yep. And they all sort of got songs on the albums. You know, in the Genesis case, Steve Hackett was kind of like the only other writer. Everybody did get songs on these albums, right? Along with that, what I was going to say is that not only is it a room full of producers, it's a room full of producers who are only looking out for themselves. Yeah, I think in a lot of cases you can say that's true. Mm -hmm. So among the Yes alumni, this version of Yes featuring Trevor Raven becomes known as Yes West because it's located out of L.A. (laughs) And there was a group of the classic Yes lineup that wanted to go back and create a new album and reclaim that older Yes sound. And this lineup becomes known as ABWH, Anderson, Bruford, Wegman, and Howe. And pretty much immediately, Jonathan Elias, the producer, is not happy with the tracks that are being recorded. He considers them kind of flat and lifeless. Hmm. And in the middle of all this push and pull while tracks were being done, John Anderson happened to talk to Trevor Rabin, mentioned all the push and pull that was going on with the execs. And Rabin sent him away with three demo tracks that he had written. ABWH was going to just take one of the songs and record it, but when the execs started, they wanted all three songs to be recorded. This is the 90125 kind of sound again, and they went ape shit over it. <laughs> and after a whole lot of wrangling and back and forth, this ends up becoming the next DS album, Union, in 1991. And it's two discs, 
One disc is the ABWH band with their writing. The other disc is the Yes West sound with Trevor Rabin writing, with John Anderson and Chris Squire playing across both discs. Mm. It's a very schizophrenic album, I guess is the way I would put it. And they toured with this, and Craig, you talked about that tour in the round. They mm-hmm. also did this as a tour in the round. I saw it at McNichols. For the first half, it was one band. Then they would do an intermission, and the second band would come on. And the platform had to rotate clockwise for one band. And then when the second band came on, it had to rotate counterclockwise because all the cables were being twisted up inside. <laughs> so literally, it would untwist as the second half of the show went on. That's awesome. I don't like this album. It's very strange. And then the fourth album in the Trevor Rabin era is an album called Talk. And I think this is a fantastic album. This is one of my top 50 albums of all times. Serious? Yeah, absolutely. For a number of reasons. First of all, it's very heavy prog. Again, it's pretty much a Trevor Rabin solo album. But the song Talk is about a 20-minute, three-movement song. It's just gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And this is what that sounds like. And it's also notable because it's the first popular album that was ever fully recorded digitally. Hmm. This album was recorded uh, using four Apple Macintosh computers with Digital Performer, which is a Motu, Mark of the Unicorn, DAW. And they all had to be slaved into a single IBM computer. And it was fraught with all kinds of trouble that was always locking up. Hmm. No doubt. Trevor Rabin really wanted to do it digitally, and the band stuck with him. And the quality of this album is very, very good. That's cool. But Trevor's kind of done with it. He's tired of the drama. He only does these four albums, and he's gone. So then the lineup in 96 returns to Anderson Howe, Squire, Wakeman, and White, (laughs) the post-Fragile lineup. And they get together to produce two new albums called The Keys to Ascension. There's really only two new tracks on this. And the rest of the albums are live recordings of a lot of their earlier material. So I don't have any clips of it here, listeners, if you want to pick it up. 
If I'm going to listen to a classic Yes lineup live, I just pick up Yes songs. Mm-hmm. But then that band dissolves again, <laughs> and they form a new lineup. John Anderson, Steve Howe, Billy Sherwood on second guitar, and Chris Squire. And this album becomes the latter in 1998. And at this point, I was going to drop Yes from my listening catalog. I was just kind of tired of all the lineup changes and everything. But then I found this out, which is really interesting. I don't know if you guys ever played the game Homeworld. No. Did you, Tony? It sounds familiar. It's a space-based simulator. It's an amazing game. Yeah. I really got into it. And Relic, the game maker, made a deal with Yes to have some of their music from the latter featured in the game itself. So you can hear some Yes music as you play Homeworld. Wow. Oh, cool. That's why I got into the latter. And for a while, my wife and son got into it. We used to listen to the latter in the car. This does have sort of a back to the original Yes sound again. It does have a very original Yes sound. Yeah. They tour with Igor Kuroshev on keyboards, and then they reunite one last time in 2001 for the album Magnification. Mm-hmm. But this album was written and recorded with no keyboards at all, and it was recorded with the San Diego Symphony, but I didn't listen to it a whole lot. This is the last Yes album with John Anderson on vocals. And then Alan White dies in 2002. There are three more albums that come out, 2011, Fly From Here, Heaven and Earth in 2014, and The Quest in 2021. And even though Chris Squire was part of the band until he dies in 2015, it just didn't feel like Yes anymore to me. They have David Benoit vocals for one album, and then they have John Davison from Glass Hammer Joins for the last two albums. I did try to go listen to some of the Quest. Mm-hmm. The only thing I could recognize out of it was Steve Howe. Mm. <laughs> and I want to say it's Jeff Downs. Alan White died, so I'm not sure who's doing drums. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly not him. Yeah, certainly not him. And Billy Sherwood. I think he's playing bass now that we lost Chris Squire. But it just feels like the version of Yes that's kind of limping along, making money off the name, to be completely honest. Hugely influential band. I mean, when they were starting originally with Fragile and Close to the Edge, I think those are two groundbreaking albums. I agree. Oh, they're absolutely seminal. You think about what else was going on at the time. The only thing I think touched it was ELP for me. Mm-hmm. Now, I missed the Genesis era. Yeah, but Genesis didn't really break through at that time. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes was big from the beginning. ELP was pretty big from the beginning. No, I agree. Hugely seminal band. A lot of the folks from our generation, and particularly where I grew up, we all loved them. We listened to them a ton, and now they're on the cruise. No, they. I think they have decided they're not doing the cruise anymore. Yeah, that gets into the whole discussion of you know when is it a real band, when is it a cover band? It's the band of Theseus. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's actually what some of these older bands are. I mean, I say that kind of jokingly, but they're kind of the band of Theseus, where they're like. Oh, this person's not in it anymore, but this person, right. like, and so is it really the same band anymore or not? Exactly. Yep. I totally agree with that comment. I went to see them probably three years ago 
Mm -hmm. And everyone around me was so excited because they're like, I want to see yes again. (laughs) But it just landed kind of flat for me. Yeah, serious. So I saw ARW a couple years ago, which was uh, Anderson, Rabin, and Wakeman show. It was great. I thought it was great, too. Yeah. Really, really good energy. Um, You know, Anderson and Wakeman, to a lot of people, myself included, really personify the yes sound. Yeah. That's like I said before, like whenever people ask me about yes, I'm like, I describe Rick Wakeman and I describe John Anderson. like (laughs) And Chris Squire for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because Wakeman isn't on that many albums. When you think I about know. it, it's it, it's kind of funny. Yeah. That it's interesting how big his influence is. And now, in fairness, I think you guys have a different perspective on this. I came at Wakeman yes. from his solo stuff, fell in love with the solo stuff, and then know he's attached to Yes. So, hmm. right, his contributions to Yes probably stick out more for me that way. So, with something as big as this. I definitely want to get some recommendations out of you guys because there's no way we covered everything. Mm-hmm. Pick one or two things where you guys want people to go next, and I'll start with you, Craig. For me, it's got to be Yes Songs. Yes Songs is a three-album live collection. It bridges the period of time where Bruford was touring with them and White was touring with them. And it's pretty much live versions of every great song from the Yes album, Close to the Edge, and fragile yeah. um it's it's almost every song and the recording is not that great but super extended solos long ash alan white drum solo great live versions of and you and i great uh great roger dean artwork um if you get an old copy i think there's even a booklet that came with it if i recall with a bunch of uh, roger dean artwork yeah it's not a remaster but when they moved it to cd Mm-hmm. They put the little booklet in there that had all of that because the copy I picked up at CD Trader has that all in it. It's a good collection of, of early Yes songs. Cool. What about you, Lee? I like Craig's recommendation with Yes songs because that covers a lot of the classical area. But I still think Talk is the best Yes album of all time. I just think Trevor Raven is a master, even though he did change the sound of Yes pretty significantly. Right. Cool. Yeah, so I'll put all these references in the show notes. I'm not going to weigh in much on recommendations because you guys are the experts here. But I mean, this is a big topic. And like I said, even when I was trying to prepare for it, it's just a huge discography to cover. (laughs) Yes. This is definitely one of those, I'll call them a pillar of Prague. You can't talk about Prague, especially classic era Prague without talking about yes. Right. Yeah. As we exit the show tonight. Don't forget that you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at UP3Show, now on Mastodon at UP3Show from the Mastodon.social server. What kind of sound does a Mastodon make? It is, actually. That's their name. And in fact, we're on Twitter. They call them tweets. I think on Mastodon, they call them toots, uh, (laughs) which is a whole other thing. Um, You can also contact us, and we encourage you to do so uh, via email at up3show at gmail.com. We definitely want to hear from you guys about what kind of topics you'd like for us to cover here on the show and any feedback about how we're doing. If you want to give the show some support, it's super easy. You can support us non-financially by subscribing on Podbean at up3show.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please take a moment to write a review if your service does allow that. That helps to make sure that the algorithms promote the show properly 
Ashley and other folks find the show when they do a search. If you would like to support the show financially, and I definitely encourage this, uh, we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash up3show. Lee has some stuff out there already. Um, For those that have been following the show for a while, um, over this upcoming Christmas break, I'm finally going to get around to recording um, my Dream Theater 12-step speed breakdown. Um, I finally decided I'm not going to do it as one thing. I'm going to break it into five or six sub things. This is going to be like a little mini-series. And probably I'm going to do reduced versions of it on the main feed and extended versions of it on Patreon. So if you throw a few coins our way on Patreon, not only are you supporting the show, you'll get access to extra content. Thank you guys very, very much. And uh, since you're listening to this in January, Happy New Year. That's right. Talk to you guys later. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Hey, folks. Tony here. If you made it this far, congratulations. You're getting everything you can out of this podcast episode. As a reminder, we're a podcast about commentary and opinion on prog music. We use samples of music to make our point and to teach others. We make no claim of copyright to any of the music featured in our samples and strongly recommend that you support the artists we talk about by buying their albums and merchandise or seeing them live. If you're an artist and you'd like for us to change how we've used your content on the show, please contact us directly so that we can work together.